Miss the show, no worries. On point on this podcast, we heard apologies made to the victims of military sexual misconduct. The prime minister says the military turned a blind eye to the abuses which destroyed the lives of those harmed by the abuses. Yet his own government refused to act, not only on Justice Deschamps' review and recommendations, but both Mr. Trudeau and Harjit Sajjan ignored allegations brought right to them about their former top soldier, General Jonathan Vance. So easy to cast blame, but there are many governments to blame in this one. The Trudeau government will give us a fiscal update Tuesday. It has been two full years since we've gotten any kind of actual accounting of billions of dollars. You know, this sets a very dangerous precedent for any government, especially when we've got a government that can't account for hundreds of billions of dollars in spending and now wants approval to spend billions more. So we'll talk to the guy who is tasked with minding the dollars and cents of taxpayers. Marineland facing charges for allegedly breaking federal laws, which state clearly you can't use dolphins and whales for entertainment. The water park says it's all about education. But what education are we getting when the animals used are not in their natural habitat and videos that surface seem to show them in distress? And Christmas romance is huge business here in Ontario. You know all those Hallmark productions? Well, they get millions of views and the communities that have them you know, shoot in their area, get a nice multi-million dollar injection into the local economy. And romance is such a big business, it is now year-round. Who is watching these? Let us ask. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Survivors of sexual assault and sexual misconduct in the military Uh, need to be at the center of everything we do going forward and that is why this apology today is so important and why I fully and wholeheartedly support it and endorse it. Um, We need to remember these are lives of people that were impacted, lives destroyed in some cases by sexual assault to which as an institution Canadian Armed Forces regularly turned a blind eye. That needs to change. Well, your government had the chance to fix it, too, and you turned a blind eye. But whatever. Alex Pearson with you on this post-Grey Cup Monday, December 13th. Oh, yes, I know. What a bittersweet ending to what really should have been um, a hometown celebration, right? Yes, so yes. Sadly, it was not meant to be this year. We lick our wounds, but at least we know that Hamilton will have another chance for redemption to win a Grey Cup in two years. <sighs> That's my heavy sigh. Hope you had a great weekend. It has been a very busy one. And here's my vow to you today. Here's, not, here's what I'm not going to talk about today. I'm not going to talk about Omicron, okay? Because I'm pretty sure you've heard enough hysteria for one day, and I know that if I'm sick of it, then you also are too. Because there's actually other stuff to talk about on top of that. So that's what we're going to do. There's actually a lot of stuff coming out today. And um, in part today was about apologies. It was Apology Day with the Trudeau government, uh, the Department of National Defense and Canadian Armed Forces. And what they did is offer up these apologies, and they were actually quite uh, in-depth to those hurt by sexual misconduct within the ranks. And these were actually supposed to be delivered back in 2019 as part of a $600 million class action settlement deal involving 20,000 current or former service members. But uh, it didn't happen. And so outcoming today to make the apology, not Mr. Trudeau, who we all know loves to, you know, make his apologies, today... 
he actually sent Anita Anand out to do his dirty work. Acknowledge the pain and trauma that so many have endured because the very institution charged with protecting and defending our country has not always protected and defended its own members. I apologize on behalf of the Government of Canada and on behalf of those elected officials who, throughout the history of the Canadian Armed Forces, had the responsibility to protect you and who failed to do so. Like your boss? No? No? You know, Trudeau was asked, you know, why aren't you making this apology? And um, he didn't answer why he's not delivering the mea culpa. And maybe that's because he realizes he has very little credibility on this issue, given he himself experienced his own sexual misconduct a very differently. But, you know, apologies mean absolutely nothing, zero, if the words aren't turned into action. And anybody and everybody knows about the sex abuse and misconduct in Canada's military. It's been out in the open for four decades. And, of course, it got thrust back into the spotlight thanks to our global team in Ottawa, which forced the, uh, you know, the self-proclaimed feminist government to finally do something. But, you know, key to the conversation is that they had to be forced into action because the prime minister this morning breathlessly noted that lives have been destroyed by these sexual assault cases and then says the military turned a blind eye to the abuses, forgetting that, you know, he too also looked away because he could have taken action the day he was sworn into office on that sunny day and sunny day ways or whatever the hell he wanted to promise us. And, you know, he decided to do nothing because Trudeau hated Stephen Harper. He's got a huge ego. So instead of, you know, easily implementing recommendations made by former Supreme Court Justice Marie Deschamps, who, you know, spent months investigating complaints and who had a comprehensive, exhaustive report with very key recommendations all the way back in 2015, the military, military just didn't do anything with it. And of course, the Trudeau government also allowed the report to collect us for six years. It was only when his government was shamed into acting that they do something. And not what should have been done, because what should have actually been done is the immediate implementation of this judge's recommendations. And yet instead, Trudeau decided, well, we'll just launch another time-wasting review, and we all know that that's probably going to come back with the same findings and recommendations. So, you know, if you really want to wonder how sorry the Prime Minister is with the destruction being done to victims' lives, well, like, why make them go through another time-wasting exercise that just delays all the things we all know has to be done. And certainly today, the apologies, which were fairly long, um, I'm sure that they were a first step for many. I mean, 42 years later, one of the first complainants, Lori Buchart, um, kind of sees this as the start of the end, hopefully, of the boys club. For some people today, this will resonate. And for some people, it might take time. Uh, and I say that because I feel like for the first time in 42 years, my voice is no longer silenced. There you go. And Trudeau can point the finger of blame 
all he wants at the military, but he also could have had, you know, acted in 2018 when his own former defense minister was hand-delivered the allegations of alleged sexual misconduct involving the country's then-top soldier, General Jonathan Vance. And you will recall that Harjit Sajjan not only refused to address the allegations, he made very clear he did not want to know anything about it, right? And neither did the prime minister's office, which was also aware of these complaints. And instead, they kind of just swept it under the carpet and extended Vance's contract and gave him a nice big giant raise. So we are seeing action now on this file because Trudeau's political ambitions were under threat leading up to the last election that he was so determined to call. And I mean, if you ask me, how can you claim to be a feminist and then do absolutely nothing to protect the women coming forward decade after decade after decade and certainly came forward to you with evidence of an inappropriate relationship? And I'm sorry, you can't square that circle which is why I don't think Trudeau could make that apology today, because it would ring very hollow on the issue he tells us he has no tolerance for. It's kind of like being against racism and talking about racism all the time and then ignoring racism when it's wide out in the open. Oh, yes, today uh, Trudeau was on the hot seat, so he was talking about the military, and then he got asked questions about Bill 21 and why he wasn't doing more to stop it. And like all the other leaders, he said, well, I'm against Bill 21, but I'm going to stay out of it for now. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about the guy who accuses anyone of racism to score political points. And now he's going to stay mum on a racist bill because he said he didn't want to give Francois Legault a political wedge issue to use against those who are fighting the bill. Mm-hmm. I was a bit rich. The guy who... The guy who will wedge conservatives on just about anything and everything is apparently suddenly concerned about handing the Quebec Premier a wedge issue. I mean, really? What a joke. I mean, you're either against or okay with racism. And it seems pretty clear that when it comes to this Bill 21, federal leaders in this country, uh, including the Prime Minister, are very willing to turn a blind eye to that in order to protect their votes. Like, say one thing, do another on all these files. How much does the Liberal government plan to spend on Tuesday in this fiscal update? I guess we're about to find out. And I do wonder if they will heed warnings from the banks to maybe chill out on the spending. But uh, Christian Freeland will table this fiscal update. This is not a full itemized or costed budget. We have not seen one of those in two years, which I think, you know, at some point could have been forgiven to a degree because of the pandemic. But, you know, we are two years into this thing. We've got a government asking for tens of billions more in spending, yet it still can't account for how it spent hundreds of billions in the last pandemic response package. And, you know, this should not be acceptable. I'm sorry, but the government is spending our money. And no matter how fast it wants, you know, or to get that money out, we are still deserved an accounting of how it minded our dollars and cents. So not getting a full costed budget in two years, I think, sends a very dangerous pe precedent for any government. But this update also comes off an election where the Trudeau government promised billions in new spending. And now we have a fiscal situation that is much, much different, namely inflation has surged and surged big time. So who gets to deal with this uh, monetary headache? That would be a guy named Yves Giroux. He is the parliamentary budget officer. Good to have you. Thank you. 
Let me ask you, I mean, when did it become okay not to see a fully costed budget in this amount of time? Have we ever seen a government go this long without tabling the numbers? Well, it's probably happened in the history of this country, but I don't remember seeing such a, a long time between the end of the year and the tabling of what we call the public accounts, which outlines how much has been spent by the government in the year that ended on March 31st. By legislation, it has to be done by December 31st, but usually it's September, sometimes October, and pushing it, it's in November when there's something like an election or extraordinary events, uh, for example, the House not sitting. But to wait until mid-December, uh, I don't recall it being that late, although, as I said, it might have happened before. Um, so, And I don't think there's any good reason for that because most provinces are able to do that way, way sooner than the federal government. And their accounting is by no means significantly easier than that of the federal government. So there's no like valid, substantial reason why the government has not been able to table its public accounts, telling us how much it did spend last year. Yeah, I'm not sure what your hair or your follicle situation is, but I have to think for a guy like you, you'd be ripping your hair out because you're the person who has to account and kind of, you know, dot the I's, cross the T's. Um, and Bob Fife, a couple of weeks ago, had come out with a report that $600 billion had not been accounted for in the last spending blitz. Eight months later, do you know where that money is? Do we know where that accounting is? Uh, we don't know. We suspect it will be released tomorrow when the, my, when the Minister of Finance tables her fiscal update. Uh, that would be a good opportunity to do that. But as <laughs> yeah, I said, uh, at the latest, it has to be done under legislation by the end of December. And with respect to your reference about follicles, I, I'm bald, so uh, it's easy <laughs> for me. I, I can't like pull my hair out. Uh, that's one good thing. Otherwise, I would have become bald uh, with <laughs> this fiscal situation. <laughs> Yeah, I would think so. Look, that's not a small amount, and, and there may be a tally for it. It may all be explainable. But when you're asking, you're in a minority government situation, and you're asking, you know, the other parties to help approve, you know, billions more in spending, and right now they want another $8.7 billion uh, in new spending for more pandemic aid, uh, you know, it's very difficult for the opposition to say, yeah, yeah, we'll sign off on that. Um, you know, I'm sure that $600 billion is all accounted for. That's just not how it should work. Well, there's there's no concern about malfeasance or any money being um, hidden or slush funds or anything like that. But if it was an ordinary run-of-the-mill year where the government did its thing and the economy was was humming along, then it wouldn't be much of a concern. But the year for which we still haven't seen the public accounts is the year since the World War II where the government mm. expenditures were probably at their highest probably the biggest deficit on record. And the government is taking a lot of time to table these public accounts to let us know how much they spent, how much they collected in revenue, and what's the big gap between these two. That is the deficit. And as you pointed out, at the same time, they're rushing through the House and the Senate a supplementary estimates bill that's asking for even more spending, while parliamentarians, MPs, and senators have no clear idea how much the government managed to spend last year, more than eight months ago. It's so weird. I mean, I remember a time, once upon a time, I think it was before it was when Bill Morneau was around, when we were freaking out about 
a $39.4 billion deficit. I mean, that was so outrageous. And now you look at the numbers and total spending for 2021 is expected around, what, $634 billion? I mean, we're, we're seeing numbers that are so out of, uh, you know, it's so hard to comprehend. I think people just tune them out. Um, it's easier to get um, offended by the $39.4 billion deficit uh, than it is a $634 billion deficit. It's just they're, they're so huge. Yeah, that's that's the risk with these big numbers. We become desensitized to government spending, but it still has a lot of importance. The good news, though, is that the deficit should be significantly lower this year because of the tapering off of pandemic support. So mm-hmm. that should allow the deficit to come down from somewhere around $300 billion to still a very high number of about between 100 and $150 billion. But that all depends on how the economy is performing and what the government is doing between now and the end of the fiscal year. So what is your biggest concern? Like what keeps you up at night, you know, uh, you know, as someone who watches this? Like what is your biggest concern and what do you want to see tomorrow? My, my biggest concern is that we become, as I mentioned, desensitized to big government deficits and that we mm-hmm. take it for granted or normal that deficits of 50 or 100 billion dollars per year become just normal and people say, okay, so what? They just shrug it off and they are not concerned about government spending. So that's one big concern after having seen deficits of around $300 billion, is that we no longer care about big, big government spending and big deficits. And these will have consequences in the longer term, because what people are saying, some people in government and others are saying, it doesn't matter that much because interest rates are low <laughs> now. It is true that they're low now. It doesn't mean that they will still be low in 15 or 20 years time or even in five years time when we still have to service these accumulated deficits. So that's what concerns me. The absence of a clear plan to return to much more sustainable levels of deficit or even a balanced budget. And it's not something that is unthinkable, but it's something that we need to to get a clear handle on. How will we manage to return to sustainable levels of government spending and deficits? Yeah, I mean, look, um, deficits and and these big dollar, uh, you know, big ticket spending, all these things, I don't think they factor in for people right now. Uh, For whatever reason, I don't know if it's younger generations that just don't pay attention to the deficits. They don't mind if we have big deficits. Um, You know, inflation's here. I guess they figure it'll just all get serviced and it just won't affect them. But it it really, it might not not affect the Gen Xers or the boomers quite as much. But my kid, um, other kids, other generations, they're the ones who are going to have to they're the ones getting stuck with this bill. Well, the absence of prudent fiscal management could affect each and every one of us. So regardless of the generation, at one point, if the government finances don't become to come back to normal, then it will have implications for everybody. That being said, I don't want to sound alarmist. There's it's not like we need to hit the brakes right now. What we need to see is a plan that gets us back to something that's more normal when it comes to government spending. So it's not an urgency and a, a big like a sounding the alarm right now. But if there's no plan, that's where it becomes really worrying because recent spending was 
probably necessary, maybe not all of it, but by and large, there was consensus that the government needed to do something. But now that the pandemic is receding and we're becoming coming back to more normal levels of activity, slowly and but surely, hopefully, then it's where that's where we need to have a plan to returning to normal government spending as well. Well, the devil, as you well know, will be in the details of tomorrow's fiscal update. And then uh, if I see you donning a wig, I'll know that you've started pulling that out. So that that will, I guess, be my barometer to how panicked you might be. I very much appreciate your uh, time on this. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Alex. That is Eve Giroux, who's the Parliamentary Budget Officer. That's the other name we give it, is the uh, Financial Watchdog. So he's the one who's got to watch all of this stuff. And so heed the warnings that he is issuing. Let's switch things up just a little bit, because uh, while some may not admit watching them, uh, millions are, in fact, watching these movies, which has made Hallmark uh, kind of the kingmaker when it comes to cornering the market on these Christmas romance movies. And I used to be able to count on a handful how many would kind of rotate through the holidays, but now it's turned into this year-long season of movie love, and it doesn't really stop because, you know, Christmas rolls into Valentine's Day and then into Easter, and then there's spring and summer love to follow. And I was reading over the weekend in The Globe that Canada is a huge market for these kind of formula films, and that 41 of them have been shot this year, 34 of them in Canada, which means a huge amount of steady work for our Canadian movie crews. But when you look at it from a cost, uh, you know, advantage, we're talking like $2 million to make. They get shot in a matter of weeks. And if you're one of these small, you know, Canadian northern towns that get chosen for the shoots, that's a lot of money. We're looking at about a million, million and a half bucks pumped into the local economy. And there's nothing to laugh at these movies. 85 million people across North America watch them. 14 million are here in this country of Canada. So you might not say you watch them, but I bet you watch them. Jesse Prupas is Vice President of Development and Distribution at Muse Entertainment, which is part of the big cog in this wheel. Good to have you. Nice to be here. I was uh, sitting on my couch on a Sunday. One of these was on my uh, TV in the background, and I'm reading about the Hallmark movies. And we like, I always think to myself, like, who's watching these movies? But a lot of people are watching these movies. Absolutely. And there's definitely a specific audience. Um usually uh, intended or targeted for women, you know, 25 to 55. But I think there are many boyfriends and husbands who get roped in to them too. What is it about this particular, like, when did it start really taking off? Because I remember maybe five, six years ago, you know, you come off the, the month long of Halloween movies and then you kind of jump into the, to the romance side of things. But I don't remember there ever being this many movies. It's hard to put an exact timeline on it, but I know from our own company's history that it in 2012, I so I guess eight, eight, nine years ago, was the first countdown to Christmas on Hallmark Channel. And at that time, they had only four Christmas movies. And you know, since then, every broadcaster, almost every broadcaster in the U.S. has, has tried their hand at doing Christmas content. Uh, we've made movies for um, Netflix and the Oprah Winfrey Network and Lifetime and they've all, and Hallmark, of course, the, the main uh, purveyor of all of these. Um, so everybody's gotten into the game, into the Christmas holiday movie game. And uh, it's only been up and up. 
Yeah, because it doesn't really s- stop because now you can fall in love at Easter. You can fall in love, obviously, at Valentine's Day. But you can fall in love during the summer. So it doesn't really, there's no slowdown time in production for you, I assume, then, other than maybe a bit of time over Christmas. That's that's right. Well, and even for us over the holidays, we're, we're for our post-production teams, uh, they often work, have to work during the holidays as we, we get ready for the Valentine's Day movies or the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the spring, spring fling movies. Um, mm-hmm. one, of those, what, one thing that, that almost all these films have in common is there's always a romantic story to them. Of course. Yes. It's not, it's not wrong to say there's a, a formula uh, for these particular movies. <laughs> it's not <laughs> wrong to say that. Um, there is a, uh, there's, a, there's a formula to great screenwriting, to be honest. Uh, it has to be done in a certain number of pages. Uh, every film needs to be a certain number of minutes. Um, and there's a, uh, there's a model for how we get there. The, the art is taking that, that formula and making it feel original, uh, or at least the stories and characters feel original, and, uh, and, the, uh, and the romance feel real, and to really bring real emotion to it. So those, those films that really succeed are the ones that make people laugh and that make, make people cry. And if you can achieve laughs and tears in, the, in a movie with your audience, then you've got a hit. Yeah. Uh, and, and are they more accepted now than they were before? Because the production seems more slick, but you've got, you know, bigger name talent. I mean, uh, Lacey, um, I want to say Lachey. There's a couple that, you know, who were in pretty big series in the United States uh, that get into these states. Are they more accepted? For sure. For sure. And, and depending, of course, on the, on the, the networks that, that's showing them and the budgets available. Um, but, you're seeing bigger and bigger stars interested in these in these films, and um, um, we've done several with Candace Cameron, for example, who's a big star. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rachel Lee Cook. You were you were, I think you were thinking of Lacey Chabert. Um, yeah, she's done you know a bunch of these. Um, and uh, you know, I recently saw Nina Dobrev in a Netflix one. And, um, mm-hmm. It's just uh, it's just amazing to see the amount of of attention that these types of films are getting at this time. But they are a business. It's almost like a, a sandwich shop where you're kind of churning them out. What is it about Ontario? And I know uh, there are many that are shot in BC, but what is it about Canada and, and specific because I'm in Ontario? What is it about Ontario that makes for such a good location for these movies? Well, Ontario has some gorgeous, quaint, beautiful towns that are very accessible to uh, major metropolitan areas. We do a lot of filming in the Ottawa area. And the towns around Ottawa are all built in the Victorian era, or they have uh, beautiful squares. They have outstanding architecture, and they're film-friendly. And when you want to make movie magic, having the backdrop of a, a quaint, lovely town is what you need. Yeah, and and that quaint, lovely town does quite well because then you get like movie crews and sound guys and gals and and directors and all these people. They stay there. They eat lunch and dinner there. So it's actually a nice boon for for local economy. I think so, and it's and it's and and I've always felt the the local towns, be it their their mayors or their administrators or just the citizens of these towns, are super welcoming and excited to have have. Uh, their towns featured in these films. Um, so we've always felt that warmth 
um, that kind of warmth that you don't get in the big big cities and in, in the metropolitan areas of Montreal, Toronto, or Vancouver, where there's a bit of exhaustion with all the film crews. But in the small towns, there's this, mm-hmm. this welcoming atmosphere that is great. And yes, the economics helps, but I, I think the, the publicity also is, a, is an attraction. Yeah, and it's funny because um, these are Christmas movies, but you don't have to shoot them at Christmas because I was looking at the set and I was like, oh, look, it's you've got that snow. I mean, you're shooting these things in, in the summer. That's got to be very difficult given they're wearing, um, you know, scarves and, and hats and mitts and, you know. It's one of my one of my small gripes. I wish I wish that our, our, our ability, you know, that we had more more chances to shoot them in the in the winter. I've, I've had a few that I've shot one on the Ottawa Canal, for example, when it was frozen in the middle of winter. It was a great experience. But you're right. Most tend to shoot in the spring or in the summer or in the fall. And we don't have snow on the ground and we don't have ice. And we've got to make all of that. And we've got to make all of that for camera. And and we do that with a combination of uh, practical effects, um, this, this stuff known as snow biz, which is uh, actually made out of sugar <laughs> that we, mm-hmm. we blast into the air and, and, and kind of floats beautifully down. Um, mm-hmm. We use real ice sometimes. We go to the... In, 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 British Columbia have gone to the fishing boats and we pick up ice from those guys and we scatter real ice on the, on the ground. Um, we have things called snow blankets, which are basically what they are, blankets of white material that you cover grass up with. Um, all kinds of other fluffy compounds. We do things called wet downs, which are to wet, to make it look icy and wet. Um, mm. All of all of that in the interest of making it feel real and real winter. Um, the one thing that we can't take though, and that's uh, it's a challenge, is uh, is cold. And yeah. So you know, very often you have you know actors who are shooting in the warmth of summer under a bunch of layers of uh, <laughs> winter clothing, sweating away. Um, that's always a trick. Yeah, and, and why can't I see their breath? But nonetheless, it, it works. People are watching them. Um, and the bottom line is it's turned into enormous business. I've noticed there's a lot more diversity in the cast. I mean, there's a lot more uh, people of color, uh, gay characters. I mean, it's evolved a lot, I think, in the last two to five years. Where, where do you see this going, Jesse? I mean, is it just going to continue the demand for it, keep going up? Absolutely. Uh, I think there is going to be increased demand. We already are looking at a, you know, a couple, two, three movies for next year in this space already. There's going to be, I think, increasing focus from some of the major streamers as well who see, see this as business opportunity as well. Um, and, and yes, there's going to be a lot more diversity in these, in these stories, be it in terms of the actors you see on screen, the romances, the intercultural romances that you'll see on screen, the talent behind the films. Um, where we're, we're we're working with diverse directors, diverse writers, and to also telling more diverse stories, holiday stories that aren't necessarily you know about Christmas, but could be about other other holidays um, and um, how other cultures respond to Christmas and uh, or, or participate in Christmas. Let me put it that way. And um, so we're 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 we've got some really fun point of views that we're we're about to hopefully share with the world including a you know what it's like for hindu family um at christmas time um or um 
maybe there's a movie for the the lesbian community, you know, a, a love movie there that we should be doing at Christmas time. These are things that are running through our company's mind. Well, nonetheless, romance is your business, and business is great, and it's uh, great for our local economy. So I say great to that. Uh, Jesse, thanks so much for your time. I know you guys are crazy busy as you try to wrap up the season, but I appreciate you joining, joining us. You're, thank you. It was a pleasure. That is uh, Jesse Prupas, who's with uh, Muse Entertainment, which is a big part of, of how these movies are getting made. And, of course, we have them on the W Network. They play all day long, so if you want to flip them on. But it's funny because you can often see, oh, I know that town or I know where that is. Or you can see some of the snow, which isn't snow if you look hard enough. Question, I guess, is will the show go on? I don't know what that show actually looks uh, looks like moving forward if you're at Marineland, which is now uh, back in the news with charges that allege the Marine Park used dolphins and whales for entertainment purposes, which would then go against a law passed in 2019 that makes it an offense for dolphins and whales to be used for entertainment. And Marineland claims these animals are used for educational purposes. They sent out a statement today saying, quote, our animal presentations contain marine mammals undertaking behaviors they exhibit in ocean environments, end quote. The problem, and there are a few, is where these mammals are held is nothing like an ocean environment. So there's nothing normal about it, which animal rights groups have used as evidence to try to get this park shut down. Camille Labchuk joining me now. She is the executive director of Animal Justice. Good to have you, Camille. It's great to be here, Alex. This is a pretty big development. Um, this is uh, an investigation that's going been going on since, uh, I guess, September, August. Uh, but but this is um, this is a, a newer piece of legislation, but it is a, a pretty big step, I think. Yeah, that's right. When the law was passed in 2019, it was in response to an outpouring of support from Canadians who really wanted to see whale and dolphin captivity end in this country. And not only that, but protect these creatures from being used in demeaning performances. Uh, you said it in your intro, but it's true that whales and dolphins don't dance to mambo number five in the ocean. They don't do dolphin dance parties. They don't push trainers through water. And that uh, those are all activities that occurred during the dolphin show at Marineland. Yeah, and there have been um, videos that have surfaced of late, and, and it's not uh, unusual. There have been many videos over the years, but certainly in the last few months uh, showing captive, um, you know, smaller whales doing tricks and twirls and that kind of stuff. But there were also videos, Camille, that showed a beluga in, in what looked like to be real distress where, you know, she was hitting the side of her enclosement over and over and over again in this repetitive kind of, you know, performance. And, and I'm not sure if that uh, had anything to do with why charges were led, but nonetheless, it certainly, I think, opens a lot of people's eyes. Absolutely. The the public has been just shocked about the conditions that Kiska, the orca whale, has been enduring at Marineland. Alex, she's been by herself now for 10 years. And experts have said mm. that she's the world's loneliest orca because she doesn't even have another cetacean companion like a beluga or a dolphin. She's all alone. So we actually filed a separate complaint over Kiska's welfare because it's illegal not just to cause physical distress or suffering to an animal, but psychological distress as well. And authorities are still investigating that complaint. Certainly education on things like animal rights or animal issues has changed. Uh, you know, when I was a teenager, you know, it was barely talked about. It's, you know, and, and certainly 
in my 20s and 30s, it was not talked about. Now it seems in 2021, people are, are catching on that it, it, this is not education. Certainly, we also have the technology, as you well know, if, if people want to be educated about how an animal might live in the ocean or in a, you know, in its own habitat, we have the technology that can show that. Um, so I'm, I'm not really sure how any kind of marine park today, um, you know, can sell itself as an education because it's just not real. I think that's right. I mean, we're not seeing anything about these whales' natural lives or or any animals kept in zoos or aquariums that happen not to be whales either. Uh, I think that's why we're seeing a massive drop in support for the idea of keeping animals in zoos and aquariums so that people can simply look at them. Uh, As you point out, this used to be totally accepted by most people, and it was fine. I went to the zoo myself as a kid, and I'm sure a lot of listeners have done so too. Uh, but if you look at polls now, most people now say they think it's wrong to keep those animals in those sensitive, uh, those sensitive animals in those barren environments. And you're right. You know, if I wanted to learn about whales or any other species, all you've got to do is turn on Netflix and watch Planet Earth, where you can actually get footage of them in their natural habitat, instead of going to an artificial concrete environment and seeing these animals sadly circle for their entire lives in tiny tanks. Marineland says this is just, uh, you know, a group of overzealous animal rights uh, people trying to destroy a business. Um, you know, look, I, it doesn't take much for a video to surface and for people to make their own minds up on this. Um, you know, when, when we're talking about animals, they can't speak for themselves, but it very much does open a lot of people's eyes. What do you say to their comments back? You know, I think attitudes have changed. The Marineland is a relic of the 70s and the 80s and simply not something that people find acceptable anymore. So Marineland can attack the messenger all that it wants. It can say, which it did say today in a statement, that the police bowed to pressure from radical activists. Uh, but the, the truth is simply that people don't accept these types of activities anymore and that facilities like Marineland need to transition to a new business model. What would that look like? Well, I think a non-animal business model is the best way to do it. Uh, Alex, there's rumors right now, many rumors, that Marineland is actually up for sale for real estate development. Mm. So it's quite possible that this facility is going out of business and will soon be something quite different. And, uh, you know, I think one of the questions a lot of people are asking in light of that news is what's going to happen to all of those animals? And many people are just so concerned about their fate. Will they be sent to other aquariums? Will they be able to find a sanctuary? Uh, We're pushing very hard and hoping that the provincial and federal governments will as well to make sure that as many of these whales as possible, especially Kiska the orca, are able to go to a sanctuary that's currently being built in Nova Scotia that's in a large bay and can house many of these animals in a more natural environment. Right, where they have actual, um, where they can actually act like a whale. Um, I'm sure many of these animals would prefer to be dead than, than in captivity. Um, but, but this legislation that went through in 2019, does that stop other um, you know, facilities from, from using animals for entertainment or is it just um, marine animals? It's any uh, cetacean, so that includes a whale or dolphin or porpoise. And the only two places in the country that still held cetaceans are Vancouver Aquarium and Marineland. Now, Vancouver Aquarium either is uh, exporting or will be exporting their sole dolphin to a facility in the States where she can have company. So Marineland really is an outlier. They're really the only business that persists with these shows, persists in trying to display, display these animals. And I think that really goes to uh, to the point that this simply isn't something that the public accepts anymore. Well, stay tuned. No question about it. It's been a headline in the news for many, many years, but uh, this is a newer headline, so we'll continue following it. Camille, I very much appreciate your time on this. 
Thank you, Alex. Always good to be here. Camille Labchuk is with Animal or Animal Justice, uh, rather, who has done an awful lot of work on this as well as other issues involving um, laws and our animals and their rights. So we'll continue watching that. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday starting 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point here on Global News Radio.